0: Hey there, welcome back, and uh, let's see what the headlines are, see if they've taken old diaper Donald into custody yet, that would be awesome, I, I saw a serpent, I saw a snake last night eating a rat, small rat, small mouse, well mouse rodents, um, And I found that highly symbolic. Thinking maybe they've taken Mr. Puckface Nazi dump into custody. That would be freaking wicked. Freaking wicked. So thanks, for Turn to 29. Might be two hundred thirty today. Thank you. Who is DojaCat dating now and in love with? Question mark. Jay Cyrus. Hashtag Vine. Hashtag comedy. Hashtag Matt Rife. Okay, welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ok, let's see what uh, Midas touch up to. jeez. Trump facing trial tsunami with brutal consequences. Legal up Live right now watching. 15K watching. Trump hit with Rico. Time to go to trial. I think they just televise it immediately. Hold the trial immediately
1: and televise it since he's... Uh, Stormy Daniel's hush money cover-up affair and the resulting business fraud, business record fraud, in front of Judge Mershon, the same judge, Juan Mershon, who presided over the 17-count conviction of the two major Let's Trump... pull up. In the pull DA's up, office, up, we have cameras up, in the courtroom. We have our jail, the Rice Street Jail, for booking and processing. We have our arrest warrants. We have our self-surrender date to avoid being a fugitist, fugitive of justice deadline of August twenty-fifth. We have Fony Willis telling people that she's ready to go in March. Look out Manhattan DA against all nineteen batteries. Oh, you thought Federal Judge Chuckkin and Jack Smith's latest indictment was all business and no politics in her courtroom? What
0: been plugged in? Why should the battery be button now?
2: Oh, man.
1: I can't believe it. Until you get a load of Fulton County process every day in every way, treating every Trump like the common criminal way. felony defendant that he is, of course. Trump liked the fact that at least 12 overt acts in furtherance of the criminal conspiracy consisted of his own tweets so much that he's decided to give all prosecutors another gift of new evidence and hold a press conference and issue a report as to why Georgia election was corrupt, and he really won, and he's going to do that before he (laughs) self-surrenders. Trump is just a b. I always be interfering with the results of the election and the peaceful transfer of power. Next, now that Fawny has obtained her sprawling, sweeping, multi-state, 19-dependent criminal RICO indictment, what, if anything, does Jack Smith do next? And how do two prosecutors coexist when occupying the same piece of real estate? election interference and fraud in georgia and six other battleground states that overlap with both prosecutions it's like a scene at a jurassic park election crimes unit does jack move to supersede and amend his indictment should and will his case go first for justice's sake and if so when and what about the new york state case brought by the manhattan da first out of the box first to indict will it be the first to be tried in March and what about Trump's efforts to disqualify the judge up in New York should that case be sidelined for now as funny Willis and or Jack Smith's cases go first and finally Twitter and its counsel are in hot water with a federal judge who not only fined them $350,000 for producing late everything about Donald Trump's Twitter account and slid into their, his DMs and user information, but she lit into them for tipping off Trump and trying, in her words, to curry favor with Trump, who had just been replatformed back onto Twitter after Elon Musk's purchase. All this and a whole lot of analysis we haven't even thought of yet, nor probably prepared for, only on Legal AF Podcast on the Midas Dutch Network with your regular anchors, Karen Friedman-Ignifolo and Michael Popak. Hi, Karen.
2: Hello. Don't you love when that happens when in the middle of us talking about something, you come up with another theory?
1: Yes. But you
2: know what?
1: I love the fact that you and I, well, first of all, we start from a, 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 a solid place, right? you almost 30 years as a prosecutor, 32 years as a defense lawyer, um in, in courtrooms like the ones that we talk about on this show. And then yes, we, we yes, we prepare, of course, for the things that we're gonna talk about and things that may happen in a lot real time while we're doing the show. But we're we're drawing and pulling from our instincts, from our gut, from our expectations about how things work, because we've seen it done in hundreds and hundreds of cases. And so let's kick it off because we have a lot of prosecutor oriented inside the minds of prosecutor stuff today. And I can't think of a better person to discuss all of that with than the former prosecutor, lead prosecutor, and number two in the Manhattan DA's office, than Karen Freeman So. Let's yeah. kick it off with what's going on um, in okay. Fulton County. We, the Midas Touch did a great live show. The brothers held down the fort while you and I. I think you weren't feeling well, and I had a, I was tied up doing something else, and I couldn't jump on so much later. Um, but and I think we, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the ninety-eight pages and the
0: mm-hmm.
1: hundreds of counts. And I know you have a very good reasoned opinion about some of the uh, the work that went into the indictment and the out, and the output. Well, let me just give the highlights of some of the th- critical things that are going to go that are going to happen going forward, um, under the assumption that everybody already sort of knows the basics, which is Donald Trump and 18 others indicted under the Georgia really expansive uh, racketeering um, influence and corrupt organization act, a, a set of statutes that was originally. Uh, established to go after organized crime like the mob like in the godfather era but has been used time and time again Um, In other public corruption, public integrity, financial securities fraud cases, really, you name it, there's no limitation as the body of law has been developed through the Supreme Court and otherwise um, to it. And the person who is probably considered the, no pun intended, the godfather of RICO has always been um, Rudy Giuliani, who's now on the receiving end of being indicted by the very type of statute that he used so successfully for five or six years as the. Uh, US attorney oh, for New York for southern district of New York um, and that's what launched him to national prominence and got him the I mayoralty um, and now you know sweet justice sweet irony he's on the other side of it although he's although he's complained about that's not what it's supposed to be used for although he's you know, look at that picture of Rudy there that's up on the screen <laughs> what happened to that guy where did that guy go he's been body snatched and replaced by some somebody else I'm that's no longer freak. Rudy Giuliani um, who flip-flops constantly um, we got a hot take that's running about Rudy at a press conference in 2016 saying that Hillary Clinton is a criminal. She ran a criminal organized crime family that under racketeering RICO should be indicted and we shouldn't send a criminal to the White House. Okay, let's just use those same terms, but insert Trump. And and, and the fact that Buddy Willis used it, which we've been telling our our audience for the last eight months, nine months, she's going to use the most ex- most powerful tool in her arsenal, and a prosecutor's arsenal, is conspiracy. And the best of conspiracy for this type of case is RICO conspiracy, because Rico you can attach and connect all of the defendants and, and all of the overt acts and all of the predicate case. acts and lump them all together and to make everybody responsible for it. We have an arraignment um, that's now been set. It's going to be uh, an arraignment, oh no, there's a proposed arraignment, September the 5th. Because in, in Georgia, they uncouple arraignment from processing, booking uh, and processing. Those two things are, are, are uh, not together in one place like in the federal court system. So uh, Fannie Willis and the judge presiding, Judge McAfee and the sheriff, have given everybody, all 19 people, until the 25th of August to self-surrender. And very helpfully, the jailer of the um, Rice Street Jail. Fulton County Jail on Rice Street and the sheriff has said you can come on down anytime you like we're open 24-7. I'm not making uh-huh. this up. Um, you can just come on in in street clothes and we'll process you, Process you, uh-huh. which means booking, fingerprinting, uh, could be digital, could be the old-fashioned black ink pad. Put your hand down on it, and roll your thumb to your pinky. I'm not sure what they do in Fulton County. Um, I can tell you that the Fulton County Jail is not a fun place not the actual place for the processing with the mugshots and all that, but above it in the jail, three people have died already in this month in Fulton County. But there are we have on the screen when you're an arrestee, uh, there's a whole processing and intake thing and a checklist, and Donald Trump has to read the website like anybody else. He's not going to get any special advantage. So he'll go by the 25th, maybe he'll do this press conference on the street corner, uh, like some strange, you know, street corner sparker and uh, three-card money guy, and he's gonna he's gonna talk about why he thinks Georgia fraud happened. Then he'll go in and get his mugshot and fingerprints, and then he'll come back out. And then we have a presiding judge. We have Judge McAfee, a Federalist Society member, who was also picked to replace a a departing judge by the governor, who's Republican of Georgia, uh, Governor Kemp. He was the inspector general for Georgia, so he was the chief Boy Scout. He looks like a Boy Scout in the photo. He's 34 years old. He's the youngest and most inexperienced judge on Fulton County's bench They got 19 judges. He's number 19 in seniority. He's been on the bench for three months. I'm not making this up. Everybody like around the world in the country are probably thinking, oh, fuck, you're making stuff up now. We gave Judge Cannon, the least experienced judge in the Southern District of New York, the Mar-a-Lago case. We gave this. This is the best they can come up with. But this is how random wheel selection happens. He is the presiding judge. He will be the judge here. Interesting fact, he also uh, worked under Fawny Willis before she became the DA. When she was the head of the Complex Litigation Department or Division of the Fulton County DA, she had one, she Scott McAfee, office. working under her. That's wow. not a disqualifier. I'm just putting it out there. So you've got a Federalist Society Republican mm-hmm. Boy Scout who's been appointed. Very, very inexperienced. But you know Donald Trump will find a way to attack him. And... Uh, and now you have finally the uh, proposed series of dates with Fawny Willis telling the world as of just now, I mean just now, that she's ready for trial on the 4th of March of this coming year. So we, we've been very careful at looking at the calendar and trying to slot all of this checkerboard together. And we basically gave March over to New York, because that's where the Stormy Daniels hush money cover-up business record fraud case is being handled by Karen, your old office. But, but Fonny's like, eff oh, it. I'm, I'm doing March. I like March. I have a big Rico case, and I want to do March. So that's where we're at now. Come in as the prosecutor. Tell us about what you thought about so the quality of the indictment, issues with the indictment, if there are any, and this March trial date. And where the Manhattan DA's office and their position, because they've already sort of taken a position in July about whether they'll yield to other bigger cases. Where do you think all this kind of slots together?
2: The indictment is 98 pages long, charges 19 people, 30 unindicted co-conspirators, 41 substantive criminal counts, but within that there's over 160 acts that relate to either the RICO or the conspiracy, which I'll I'll describe in one minute. Uh, There's 22 counts related to forgery or false documents or statements. There's 8 counts related to soliciting or impersonating public officers, 3 counts related to influencing witnesses, three counts related to election fraud or defrauding the state, three counts related to computer tampering, one count of RICO, the racketeering count, and one count of perjury. Trump and Giuliani are both charged with 13 counts each. That's the most of anybody. John Eastman is next with nine. And then you've got uh, Ken Sheesborough and Sidney Powell each with seven. Mark Meadows, Jeff Clark, Jenna Ellis with two. And then there's some people I've never heard of that are are also charged, um, who are sort of lower-level people. Now, what is RICO? What is conspiracy? Why charge it? These are all kind of these murky questions that I'm sure a lot of people are like, I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it is. What's the difference? And I will not pretend that I'm a RICO expert, but let me try and explain it the way I understand it. So conspiracy, when you charge conspiracy, is two or more people agree to commit a crime together. And conspiracies are Wait, universally available all clip over the country. Of all those
0: charges.
1: But, but Fonny's like, oh, F it. I'm, I'm doing March. I like March. I have a big Rico case and I want to do March. So that's where we're at now. Come in as the prosecutor. Tell us about what you thought about the, the quality of the indictment, issues with the indictment, if there are any, and this March trial date. And where the Manhattan DA's office and their position, because they've already sort of taken a position in July about whether they'll yield to other bigger cases. Where do you think all this kind of slots together?
2: The indictment is 98 pages long, charges 19 people, 30 unindicted co-conspirators, uh, 41 sub. Whether the, that's the most, can uh, she's grown? The indictment is 98 pages long, charges 19 people, 30 unindicted co conspirators. Uh,
0: Forty one substantive criminal counts, but within that, there's a
2: Over 160 acts that relate to either the RICO or the conspiracy, which I'll I'll describe in one minute. Uh, There's 22 counts related to forgery or false documents or statements. There's eight counts related to soliciting or impersonating public officers. Three counts related to influencing witnesses. Three counts related to election fraud or defrauding the state. Three counts related to computer tampering one count of RICO, the racketeering count, and one count of perjury. Trump and Giuliani are both charged with 13 counts each. That's the most of anybody. John Eastman is next with nine. And then you've got uh, Ken Cheeseborough and Sidney Powell each with seven. Mark Meadows, Jeff Clark, Jenna Ellis with two. And then there's some people have The indictment is 98 pages long. Charges 19 people, 30 unindicted co-conspirators, 41 substantive 41 substantive criminal counts. But within that, there's over 160. Cafe legal. Cafe legal.
0: Rico racket relate to either the Rico or the conspiracy which I'll describe in one uh, There's twenty two counts
2: related to forgery or false documents or statements. There's eight counts related to soliciting or impersonating public officers, three counts related to influencing witnesses, three counts related to election fraud or defrauding the state, three counts related to computer tampering. One count of RICO, the racketeering count, and one count of perjury. Trump and Giuliani are both charged with 13 counts each. That's the most of anybody. John Eastman is next with nine, and then you've got uh, Kamala and Sidney Powell each with seven. Mark Meadows, Jeff Clark, Jenna Ellis with two, and then there's some people I've never heard of that are are also charged, um, who are sort of lower-level people. Now, what is RICO? What is conspiracy? Why charge it? These are all kind of these murky questions that I'm sure a lot of people are like, I don't really know what it is, what's the difference, and I will not pretend that I'm a RICO expert, but let me try and explain it the way I understand it. So conspiracy, when you charge conspiracy, two or more people agree to commit a crime together. And conspiracies are universally available all over the country, both in state and federal court. And in there you need an agreement, and you need an agreement to commit a crime, and you have to have committed some number of overt acts. Some states only require one overt act and an overt act is just any act it doesn't have to be criminal so it could be two people agree to go rob a bank together uh they agree they're going to rob the bank they mean it and one of them rents a car Uh, and and he's going to be the getaway driver and then they get caught before it happens they would be charged with conspiracy to rob a bank and the the um Rental of the car is an overt act, right it's not illegal in and of itself, but it's they took a step to to towards their agreement and so you will see she's charged conspiracy here but she charged Rico conspiracy, which is like a type of Rico, but it's still conspiracy within it and you'll see in there some of these counts some of these one hundred and sixty acts that she charges she says they are overt acts and furtherance of the conspiracy and, and what she's doing there is she's spelling out that that's what that relates to because for rico and rico's very different than conspiracy it's sort of i think one commentator um Norm Eisen, called it a conspiracy on steroids which is kind of what it is RICO is much more serious, it's much more severe, and it requires more, and it stands for the Rocketeering Influence Corrupt Organizations Act. It was passed in the 70s in federally, it became a, a thing in the 70s, and it had to do with, I think, mafia and other gangs, and because there weren't really statutes that encompass all of the activities that groups that organized groups commit together you have low level people high level people some people don't even know of each other but they're all part of the same group and they all share a common goal and so for example there aren't a lot of crimes that fit the conduct of a president trying to steal an election because no one would ever believe that that is something that would happen right however there is this crime called rico that talks about a group of people that has a structure and a common purpose and the common purpose here would be to steal the election and you commit crimes in the process and so again you don't not all the people have to even know each other they don't have to have talked to each other they don't even have to uh have have the same common purpose meaning this group could be the one who's going to break into the computers and that one's going to be the ones to try to do the fake electors and this one's going to be the one to pressure the secretary of state they're all they, they don't necessarily have the same job description in this common purpose, but they do have the same common purpose, which is to steal the election. So here you've got an enterprise or an organization. You've got uh, this group of people and the leader is Donald Trump. And you've got all these individuals under him, including un- uncharged or unindicted co-conspirators, which means they may or may not be cooperating. All I know is they weren't charged here. And you have to have committed two crimes in furtherance of this uh, RICO. Unlike overt acts and a conspiracy, again, remember we said that doesn't have to be a crime. Your overt act; these are overt acts that are crimes. So predicate acts that are crimes. And so it would be, it would be, you know, my, I'm part of your group. I have the same common purpose, meaning I'm going to steal the election and I forge documents, right? That's one crime. So this requires two crimes. And so if you go through the 160, you'll see the crimes that are listed in there. She, She will say that they committed this crime in that act and that this is both an overt act in the conspiracy as well as a rico act and so that's that's the distinction in there now there's a there's a couple of places where i think there's some mistakes in the indictment and my own theory is that this indictment was uh it was intended to be was intended to be uh, published and voted on on tuesday but the clerk of the court accidentally posted the front of the indictment on Monday. They then uh, put it, put a statement out saying, "Oh, that was just a, a dummy mock-up that we did to try and um, to try and see if the computer system worked." But I think that's a little bit of a weird excuse, given the fact that I think it matches perfectly with the, the actual indictment. So. Anyway, um, but the, but the point is, I think that might have might have pushed her to rush this, and that's why they stayed late on Monday and they voted this because there are some sloppy errors. For example, you'll see um, number fifty-two of the act. Um, you'll see number fifty-two uh, is there's two number 52s and there's no number fifty-three, um, so that's just a dumb error, right, clerical error it just means no one's gone through with a with a fine tooth comb. And then there's at least three acts. Where they clearly have charged a substantive crime, but rather than calling it a racketeering act and a conspiracy overt act, they only call it a conspiracy overt act. And so if you look at number 23, for example, yeah, there's number 52 and 52, and then it goes to 54. Um, but if you if you go to uh, number 23, I think it is salty. If you want to put that one up, you'll see that it lists a substantive crime, but it doesn't list at the bottom uh, that it's both a racketeering act and a overt act justice overt act. And I don't know if she meant to do that or didn't mean to do that. And there's a few possibilities. See, act see It, it says in there, honor about the third day of December, Giuliani and Eastman and all, et cetera we um, were, we're um, in violation of o you know o c g a section 1647 the 1610-1 it, at the very end it says this was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy now if you go to now number 24 if you can pull that up salty you'll see that um, number 24 um Will have slightly different language at the what end. What does it mean,
1: though, Karen? I mean, I get what? the differences, but from a prosecutor standpoint, from an elemental charging standpoint, what is the difference? Is it something she has to clean up in a superseding? I think is so. It just, because, is it yeah. Is just sloppy? But to explain to the audience? Yeah. What? Because we're just using terms now. overt act, not over. Yeah. Act. Well, so if you, see,
2: if you see number twenty-four, it says they, at the bottom, this was an act of racketeering activity. And an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. And the reason it's significant is because in order to be convicted of RICO, you have to be, um, each person has to also have committed two of these racketeering acts, right? They have to have found been found guilty of committing these two substantive crimes so you know it's just important to list in there that this is one of those substantive crimes right and so that's why it matters now it might not be a mistake um i'll tell you the two reasons it might not be a mistake number one rico requires only allows certain crimes to be Pattern acts or over or you know RICO acts, and so the, we have, so I have to see if these are designated crimes under RICO. I did look, I did try, and Georgia is not an easy statute to understand. So I'm hoping we'll get some clarity on that, um, or perhaps maybe you know they don't think they have those crimes beyond a reasonable doubt or, you know, whatever it is, you know, there could be reasons for this that is not a mistake. It's just things that I saw were kind of different um, in this. And, and there's a few other little typo type mistakes in there um, that made me think that this was slightly rushed. But, it, but other than that, I do think it's a sweeping indictment. I think it's excellent. I think it is just absolutely uh, makes them all look like You know, whereas the Jack Smith or other ones, you can make this claim of, you know, the other side will make this claim of free speech or First Amendment. These are words. This makes them look like just regular old criminals, right? Like this, this just absolutely smacks of Watergate and breaking and entering and stealing. I mean, I just can't even believe when you read some of the sections in here, um, You look at the manner and methods section, it's actually titled manner and methods, and that's kind of the meat of the crime. That's the meat of the indictment. And it talks about, you know, false statements and lying to, you know, during legislative hearings. Right. Um, And, you know, high ranking officials like Brad Raffensperger, you know, being contacted and pressured or the creation and distribution of these fake documents. Right harassment and intimidation of, a, of the election worker, Ruby Freeman. She, so She Moss is not mentioned in count 50. In, in the, in the, um,
1: I think she was harassed a different way. I think yeah, the, yeah.
2: I think that's true. A tri-
1: stylist contacted um, yeah. Ruby and tried to convince her to say that things were going awry inside the room when they were, in other words, have to lie.
2: Exactly. And, I, and look, I think... I'm so glad that Shay Moss and Ruby Freeman, who is listed in there later um, in in uh, in Act 56. Um, I am so glad they're in this indictment because for two reasons. Number one, for them, because what they went through was so egregious and so uh, difficult. Um, but number two, because as a prosecutor, this, at the end of the day, is a paper case, right? It's not a blood and guts case. <laughs> the way you, you don't have, you know, you don't have a victim. The American people are the victim. The electorates are the victim. And paper cases can get kind of boring. You got a victim like Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman who will get up there and testify about what it's like to have the President of the United States come after you and how you have to move from your home and how you are getting called horrible names and death threats. They are going to be the two most powerful witnesses. They're going to put a face to this horrific crime. And I think the bullying and the, you know, you you can only chalk up so much to, oh, this is political speech, right? This is politics. This is people just saying things and, and, and legitimately questioning elections, et cetera. When you put Shea Moss and, Ru- and Ruby Freeman up on the stand, that is that is where it goes. Nobody will say that that was okay. And as a prosecutor, that's bold. And so I'm so glad they're in there just from a, a case standpoint. Again, like I said, for them too. But as a prosecutor, that that is so powerful and that's going to be uh, incredible. And, you know, the way she presented the acts was in chronological order. And so I think she did that because she wanted to tell a story it's a little and, and I think that's a good way to do it because you know that's really what you have to try to figure out um in one in a case like this when it goes to the jury uh, a case like this can be overwhelming for a jury and that's one of the downsides to Rico is they just become overwhelmed and and there are different ways you can do it she decided to do it chronologically which you know is good and bad it's good because it tells a story but it's not great because then you're burying some of your best facts and so we'll see how she actually tries it but that's clear that's why she did it this way was to tell a story yeah. um and so then you asked me another question and I well, well,
1: let's let's uh, let's we got a lot to talk about we're gonna we're gonna talk about at all, including your prosecutor viewpoint, the judge that's been selected, whether we're going to stay in state court or federal court for some or all of these people, the 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 um, the difficulty of trying 19 people or something around that number in one sprawling trial. It's one thing to indict them in one piece of paper; it's another thing to try the case. We're going to do all of that when we return. But first, a note from our sponsors. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating clean. Feel your best. Delicious nutritionist approved recipes featuring clean ingredients with no artificial colors, sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup, and limited added sugar and processed ingredients. Choose from recipes featuring lean proteins like turkey, sockeye salmon, barramundi, tilapia, scallops, and shrimp, certified organic whole fruits and vegetables, organic cage free eggs, and plenty of whole grain options. Eat the clean way when we get the date there. The government has said is good for us. Why don't we pick a jury right before Christmas? Everybody loves to do that. I can yeah. tell you that as a trial lawyer, juries just love to be pulled in two weeks before Christmas for a jury selection. Um, and we'll try the case in January, Your Honor, and let's try that. And we know the other side for the Jan 6 case is going to say, how about never? How about we never have a trial or we have a trial sometime after the election? Let's wait till after the election, Judge. And we have Judge Antonia Chepkin who's made it clear this is her courtroom and she's going to administer justice the right way without respect of any political view, um, or to paraphrase Judge Chuckkin in her hearing, um, I understand your guy's got a day job, but he's just a criminal defendant um, in front of me. So uh, she'll pick some date. It's not going to be January, but she'll pick some date, respectful of the other date with Judge Cannon. You got this one. And now, Phony Willis, hey, I got a sprawling indictment involving seven states and fake electors and, and, and impersonations and and, uh, and all of that also, and I want to go, and I'm ready, and I'm in Fulton County, and I got an easier road to hoe, because my my law is easier, and I, let's just have a quick set of pretrial motions and, and hearings and meetings and judge, I'm ready to try a case. Okay, that's one. And then the second thing to comment on, Karen, is Meadows has jumped out first, As one of the White House aides, he was the chief of staff at one time. Uh, We're not surprised that he was indicted. We thought he was not going to be indicted with Jack Smith, but that there was no reason he couldn't be indicted with Bonnie Willis, and that happened. He's out, saying, I'm federal officer, uh, at least during the relevant time period, and I did my things under the color of my office, and therefore under a provision of the federal jurisdictional statute we call removal, I get to take my case to federal courthouse, doesn't mean we lose Fonnie Willis's team as a prosecutor. Doesn't even mean we lose Georgia law, nor does it mean a federal party would help. It just means different judge. We don't like, we, he didn't even wait to see who the judge would be. He was just like, well, I want to be in federal court. All right, he's in federal court. you got a federal judge. It's an Obama appointee, an African-American judge who sits in the Northern District of Georgia. Um, I don't think that's helpful to him, ultimately, but he's, he, you ask for it, you got it. Um, so talk about, and then, of course, Trump will follow right behind that. Talk to me about Manhattan D.A. versus that case versus the March other date for Fawny And who do you think, what do you think happens there? And then comment on the federal removal and whether you think it's ultimately be successful and whether Fawny should even fight it, given the fact that the wheels spun and it landed on a really good judge for
2: her. Look, there's no way Fawny Willis is going in March. It's just not happening. She's not going before the election. It's not possible. There's 19 defendants. And you have this giant, sweeping, 100-page, 98-page indictment. I, you know, just to just to look at uh, two other RICO cases that she has brought in her jurisdiction, there was one uh, that she did against the teachers, uh, like a teachers union, and that was 12 defendants who went to trial. So she can have she can seat a lot of people in a courtroom. Uh, I've never had or seen a 12 defendant trial in, in my practice. It's a lot of people in one room, but she's done it. And so, assuming a few people are going to flip, because that typically happens, or at least plead guilty, because that typically happens. I don't think all 19 will go to trial. Let's like, say she whittles it down to around 12. You, you could see them going all together. Uh, but even so, that last that teacher's case took about two years to try. So there's no way she's going to she's going to start that um, and and have that go for for two years. Well, I mean, what happens when, you know, he runs for president, what happens if God forbid he wins, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but just to get 19 people's motion practice and, you know, all the things that will happen that take time in a trial. I just don't see this happening in March. So it, it, there's another case, too, that she has um, been prosecuting that's going on right now, another RICO case involving uh, a young, a, a rapper called Young Thug or something like that. Uh, they started jury selection seven months ago, and they still are in the middle of jury selection. That's how hard it is. Uh, yeah, YSL. Thanks, Salty. Uh, that's how hard it is to um, even seat a jury in a case uh, in a case like this. So, I, I just don't see this. We happening. got another.
1: We got another rationale. We got breaking news, Karen. We're gonna we're gonna mention here that dovetails with what you're talking about. It is gonna piss off Judge McBurney supervising the grand jury and the presiding Judge uh, McAfee. Well, we have, we have reporting that Trump supporters are now targeting members of the Fulton County grand jury that indicted Donald Trump and his 18 co defendants. They've even on a fringe right wing deep dark website posted the home addresses doxed the grand jury. Um, and so look, there's going to have to be a lot of a protection for this ju- judicial process. And I'm sorry that Judge McAfee is only three months on the bench, but he's going to have to put on his big judge pants because there's there's just things he never was taught in judge school that he's now going to have to handle on the fly. Along with the rest, this kind of behavior and activity could end up back in Jack Smith's uh, cases in filings that he's going to make to get. To get Judge Chutkin's attention and Judge Cannon's attention, but really terrible, terrible things. I'm sure in your long career as a prosecutor, you never had a defendant ox the grand jury that indicted them.
2: Oh, and don't forget uh, the Eugene Carroll case, right? In that case, you know the the um, there was a an anonymous jury, right? You had the judge Lewis Kaplan rule that there was a likelihood that the judge that the um, jurors could be harassed or tampered with or threatened. You know, he, he had some pretty strong language there. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's where there's an anonymous. So he ruled for an anonymous jury here. The names go out, you know, the and and you see what the Trump supporters are already doing. I think it's going to be hard to find someone who's going to be able to say, yeah, I can do this and sit and fair and impartial, you know, for fear of, of Trump and his supporters. So I, I just don't see this happening anytime soon um, because of that. I, I, I think just you're think right.
1: I think the jury selection process, as you're commenting on, I mean, first of all, whether the judge even considers what we call sequestration which is used in a rarest, I mean, you see in the movies a lot, but in reality it doesn't happen, which is, sorry, jury, you're going to be living in a hotel under, you know, marshal protection or bailiff protection over the next three weeks or a month or six weeks. Everything is gross. Oh, no. And nobody wants to do it. Or, more importantly, like you said, you got to protect the jury. So you're going to have to have an anonymous jury. It's going to freak people out. Why? You know, this is so, so ridiculous, uh, so uh, sad that his supporters— are doing everything they can do to undermine Donald Trump's ability to get a fair and impartial jury uh, consistent with his constitutional rights. It's they're doing it. It's not Fonny Willis. Fawny Willis's team isn't doxing Donald Trump. It's the other way around, and, and we're suffering the consequences. But you made a very good point in past podcasts, just to tie it together here, Karen. You said, "I heard, if we were right, which we were, that she was going to do a much more sprawling indictment would, and we didn't know exactly the amount of counts, but we figured it was going to be a, a you know, a baker's dozen of defendants and a baker's dozen or more of uh, criminal counts, that that alone would take her out of the running for being one of the cases to get to trial before the election, leaving Jack Smith, the last prosecutor standing. And that's what you believe, right? Sorry, right, I had to find my mute button.
2: Right. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely.
1: so she took herself out of the running so she must know despite the the the, the bravado of saying i'm ready in march your honor the reality is she's not really ready in march and that leaves (laughs) jack smith so let's talk about that what do you think if anything because i'm sure just as we were speculating about the contours and shape of this indictment in advance and we did a lot of really good shows and got it pretty right Jackson's doing the same thing. Well, what do you think Fonny's going to be doing? What do you think her indictment looks like? How many of the battleground states do you think she's going to mention? How do you think she's going to handle Georgia? Is she going to do it like you said, Karen, chronologically? Or is she going to sort it some other way? And what do I do next? Does this impact him at all in terms of his next steps, having now now he's seen it? What does he do with it, if anything, in amending, superseding his indictments or actions he takes in his two criminal courthouses for Donald Trump?
2: I don't think one has anything to do with the other. I think Jack Smith, you know, I've always said, I don't think there's been any coordination, any communication uh, at all, other than Bonnie Willis stating publicly to the world, you know, without saying it, saying, oh, you know, let's protect, you know, news might come, so let's protect everybody, police and law enforcement. I think that was her her half tip to Jack Smith, to let him know if you're gonna go, you know, go um i think these things are just uh, proceeding on their own the the only overlap thing that is a head scratcher for me that i just cannot figure out is mark meadows there are people who like ty cobb who went on the air you know proceed to cnn uh last night who said absolutely 100 percent mark meadows is cooperating federally with jack smith and he's just certain of that and he's former white house counsel um he he just believes that to be the case. There are other people who say, no, he's not formally cooperating. He's helping with an understanding that he will enter into a formal cooperation agreement another time. But it just, the reason it's a head scratcher for me, and the reason I don't understand it is let's say he is cooperating. And if he is cooperating, he, he is, he is absolutely part of this criminal enterprise, right? He is very much, um, uh, a, a, a large part of this of this organization and committed lots of crimes alongside of, of of Donald Trump. But he'd also be a great witness because he was literally the in the room where it all happened. Right? He was the one that Cassidy Hutchinson went into, and he was the one on the phone with with Donald Trump. And Cassidy was saying, "You know, make it stop." And he was saying, "You know." like, he won't do anything about it. You know, he, he, he as you see from this indictment, too, he was all over the place, making phone calls and, and, and participating in so much of these schemes. And so he's absolutely someone you'd want to cooperate, right? But in the federal system, in order to cooperate, if you are a criminal... You know, like he is, you would have to plead guilty to all of your crimes, which means you have to admit them all, and you have to, you know, you can't kind of half cooperate the way Alan Weisselberg did in uh, in the Trump Organization trial, where he sort of, you know, agreed to testify against the Trump Organization but refused to testify against Trump. You know, that's kind of a, a half cooperation that. Frankly, I've never seen before. Um, but in the feds, that doesn't fly at all. You have to admit to all your crimes, even things that have that that um, are unknown to the government, right? Even other things, like even things that have nothing to do with this. So let's say he is cooperating and he did admit to all those crimes. How is he going to fight it in the state, right? He's now admitted to all these things. And since these what happened in the, the Georgia section of Jack Smith's indictment and Bonnie Willis's, Georgia's section of her indictment um, are there's nothing inconsistent, you know, there's some facts in Bonnie Willis's that we didn't know about, you know, that wasn't in Jack Smith's and maybe vice versa, because uh, different ones will highlight different things, but, but there's nothing inconsistent, right? So Mark Meadows, if he's, already, if he's already admitted to all that in Jack Smith's case, then he's, those are all admissions for this case, so how can he fight this case? Which, and, and he has a really good lawyer, right? Um, uh, the Terwilliger is his last name, and he's a good lawyer. He would never have arranged for cooperation in one and not the other. That, again, makes no sense um and so so there's a couple of there's a couple of questions about what's actually happening there and now we see mark Meadows try go to remove he's the first out of the gate to try to remove. His case, his prosecution from state court to federal court, under the removal doctrine, which which has several components. One of it, which you you have to be a federal officer. Uh, another is that you have to um, been acting under the color of your authority as a federal officer, and you have to have a plausible federal defense. Now, I think there's only three people in Fonnie Willis's indictment that were federal officers: Trump, Meadows, and Jeff Clark. So they're the only ones who could be removed if they choose to remove. Not sure. There are some people, and you alluded to this, that there are some people who who believe that Trump might not might choose not to uh, not to. Um, to uh, do the removal because the judge, they, the Judge Jones, who they, who they pulled there, might not be favorable to him, certainly as favorable as the state court judge that, that he pulled. But.
1: Now, let me mention Jones for a minute before we move on, as I mentioned him earlier. Stephen Jones is an Obama appointee. He was confirmed by the Senate, just to show you how things have changed, 2011, he was confirmed 90 to 0. You don't hear those numbers anymore. Confirmations, you know, are more like 52 to 48, if that. Um, but you know, his um, yes, this is going to be the judge to decide for these three, and there is there is some speculation that maybe Fauci just lays down and says, you know what, you want to do that there with with Judge Jones presiding, Georgia law, Georgia prosecutors, Georgia crimes, let's do it, let's go. We'll see.
2: Yeah, we'll see. But there's one other thing that again, and I'm I'm throwing this out there because it, I, I think I think time will tell and legal research will tell. How this plays, because, again, it does not make sense that Terwilliger would arrange a plea deal for Meadows in uh, Jack Smith's case and not in Bonnie Willis's case without having something up his sleeve. And the thing that he might have up his sleeve, and again, this is we need more legal research on this, but this is what I'm kind of playing with and trying to figure out, is analogous to something we've talked about uh, many times, which is the Westfall Act. That applies in civil cases, right, where the government substitutes uh, themselves, uh, you know, for, for a defendant, and then therefore you have immunity because you know you can't really sue, you know, for defamation, for example, sue the government for that. Um, there's something called 28 CFR section 50.15, which has to do with criminal prosecutions for acts that reasonably appear to have been performed within the scope of the employees employment and the attorney general or his designee determines that providing representation would otherwise be in the interest of the United States. Um, you know that so th- there's that and that has you know has to do with whether or not you will um, whether or not you will hire a lawyer for the person right or pay for their lawyer but there's also under that if you do some research there there's there's the supremacy clause right so Will he get, will Mark Meadows get immunity if it's removed to federal court under the supremacy clause, because this is a state court prosecution, you know, will, if it gets removed, will that then make him immune from prosecution? Maybe that's what he has up his sleeve, because if you read his removal papers, you know, in footnote two, uh, the lawyer says, look, we're going to submit another, in, in another submission, we're going to, you know, give you our reasoning for why, you know, he's, this should be dismissed and, and why he, he's, I think it says why he's immune. I just think that he's got something up his sleeve and, I want to. I want to all just kind of put your spidey sense up and and keep your ears out because there's something going on there that that we haven't figured out yet because these these no these aren't dummies right um, but and so there's something going on there with Mark Meadows that that we haven't figured out yet.
1: Yeah, I'll 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 put my uh, thinking cap on and we'll come back and hit it along with uh, we also want to talk about today um, Judge Mershon, the judge who's been. Uh, presiding over the Donald Trump stormy Daniels prosecution that's going to trial at least on paper in March and an effort by Donald Trump to disqualify him. this sounds familiar, disqualify him um, and remove him while Donald Trump is busy um, calling prosecutors, their families and trial and, and trial counsel and uh, judges deranged uh, um, you know, against him, biased. Um, crackheads, you know, uh, uh, people that are having extramarital affairs with their clients and everything else disgusting. While they're doing all of that, he also tried to disqualify Judge Marchand. We'll talk about that in Twitter, being in hot water ever since Elon Musk took over the reins there, and this time in front of what was then the chief judge of the district court,
0: Carol Howell. Now that we have our hot little hands on the transcript, be disqualified. How can we
1: For press, Trump for prison. 300-page transcript of uh, what happened in her courtroom. No it's rather. eye-popping, and we'll cover it next after a word from our sponsor. Mm-hmm. Let's stop cutting down trees to make toilet paper. Oh, it's true. Humans are cutting down. He did in the courtroom. There's, there's nothing in the courtroom that would suggest that he's biased in any way, and that's the problem. And the way it works in every court around America, judge themselves makes the ultimate decision whether they are going to be disqualified or not, or what we call recused. And then if you don't like the decision, you could take it up on appeal. But it goes to the, the – and I, have, I will tell you that I have filed a, 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 just a small handful. This is not something you take lightly uh, to do this. You have to really have the goods and have the facts. Um, and I had them in a – I think that we've done it twice in my entire 32 years. And it was successful both times because it was really bad things that happened. Uh, but you, you have to go to the same judge. And so y- you better have it, because if he's, if he's going to deny it, if he's as bad as you thought he was, you've got to take the appeal and be prepared. So, Karen, why don't you jump in with Judge Mershon having gotten an ethical ruling from the judicial panel beforehand that gave him a lot of comfort, and then what he said and his, you know, reproachment of Donald Trump, um, and, and then where do we go from here, and then we'll, we'll end the podcast today talking about Twitter and Judge Beryl Howell.
2: Yeah, Judge Mershon, uh, you know, basically said, I've searched my conscience and my heart and, you know, sought advisory opinion, and I will not recuse myself from this case. This stems from a May 31st uh, Donald Trump filed a motion-seeking recusal with his lawyer, Susan Necklace. He's the same lawyer who represented him in the Trump org case. Uh, June. And then in June, the government, or the um, the prosecution responded and you know the and the court as you as you said as had written to the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee before they even filed these motions in April asking for a formal advisory opinion because it had come out through the um through the various publications, you know, that that you have to report who donates, it came out that he had donated these tiny de minimis amounts of money to um, you know to to a I think it was like a get out the vote for anyone anti-Trump. It was like $15 or something like that. I mean, it was just a ridiculous amount of money that was so low, but it was it was absolutely in the Trump election for you know against Trump. And so the three arguments that that Trump cited for recusal was you know had to do with his daughter. Judge Mershon had a daughter that works for an like a, a an, an agency or a company that that does um, grassroots advocacy on behalf of. Uh, Democratic candidates, so he says, you know, there's political financial interest of the court's adult daughter creates an actual or perceived conflict because rulings may result in money for to his daughter. The second thing he said was the court's role in the prior case, encouraging Alan Weisselberg to cooperate against Trump, showed preconceived bias against Trump. And number three, that the campaign contributions made by the judge in 2020 raise, if true, at least the appearance of impartiality. I think they meant partiality, not impartiality. Uh, I think they meant a typo. Uh, But, you know, that that raises the appearance and the judge said, look, you know, the right to an impartial judge is a a basic requirement of due process, but, you know, it's up to me whether I recuse myself and um, I don't have to do it, you know. I, I have to make a, a decision. And he said, regarding my daughter, um, I had, I had sought an advisory committee opinion and the advisory committee said, you know, the matter currently before the judge does not involve either the judge's relative or the relative's business, whether directly or indirectly, they're not parties or likely witnesses. And we see nothing in this inquiry to suggest that the outcome of the case could have any effect on their the judge's relative's business or any of their interests. So he said, number one, that's not a reason. Number two, with the the weisselberg case he said look trump you made this argument um through your organization last time trying to get me recused off the case and it didn't work then and this is even more far afield than that and so it's not going to work this time either also he, he, he bench slaps uh susan necklace and says look you know you you you've you, gave a, an affirmation that says it's based on personal information, but it's devoid of firsthand information in contrast with Susan Hoffinger, who works for Alvin Bragg, which is full of firsthand knowledge, so I'm denying it here, too, uh, for the same reason that I denied it in the in the Trump org case when you tried to get me off. I know, you know, he didn't say this, but the judges are on to the fact that, that that's what Trump does. is. Can want I ask to, you
1: a question? No. Nope. You, you okay. know Susan Necklace by reputation, so do I. Weren't you surprised she filed
2: that? Because it didn't have any facts yeah. in it. Yeah. She's a very, very good lawyer with a great reputation. Yeah. She's well. very aggressive. You know, I think, I think sometimes you, you can't file facts that you don't, don't have, it. you know, and so... You know, don't <laughs> yeah, file you your can't. declaration. Well, well, I don't think, think you have a choice. That, that's right. one of the reasons a lot of people won't represent Trump, in addition right. to the fact that who he is who he is, is because he wants you to do things that you don't normally do. So,
1: you're, so But you're saying she made a devil's so bargain and, and she had no choice the because Just the client wanted her to file it. Yeah. And rather than saying, I don't feel comfortable <laughs> filing a declaration that's doomed to failure... And undermines my own credibility with a judge I have to appear in front of she said
2: okay <laughs> I think she did I think she did the best she could I, I you know I think it's I think look defendants all defendants have a right to zealous advocacy and she, she and, the, and the one thing I will give her a lot of credit for is she is a she is a zealot you know a zealous advocate for her clients and so I, I do think, he, you know, she believes that this is really what he wants. She's going to do it, but she's not going to lie. And so that's why it was yeah. devoid of information, because she can't, she's not going to put something in there. So the that opinion.
1: was the compromise. She submitted yeah. something, even though it was D- DOA, um, and, yet, and it gave the judge the opportunity to say, I, I don't see the facts here. and yeah. yeah. But, you know, this is the thing, we won't talk about it more today, but, you know, we've talked about it throughout on Legal AF. It's just the sacrificing on the altar of, of whatever professional ethics and professional reputation of lawyers, time and time again, for Donald Trump, if you're if you represent Donald Trump, you're either indicted, soon to be indicted, disbarred, soon to be disbarred, and at a certain point, our profession and we are members of a of a proud profession, one that I, I've called home for 32 years, and you have two, you know, less, but you have two, and uh, you know to see. There's just certain things that, you know, you shouldn't do to maintain your ethics and the ability to appear before judges in the future and have credibility with them. I tell that to my clients all the time. I'm just not comfortable in doing that or taking that position because, not because I'm worried about my own reputation, but I am because of my own ethics and professional responsibility. I always think lawyers like, like not necklace in particular, but the lawyers that we're talking about who are now indicted, they're so far away from rule, the rules of professional responsibility or conduct that they learned about in law school that you should really read at least once a year to remind yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm on the firm ethics committee at our own firm, so I'm, I'm dialing through that book a lot. Uh, but other other lawyers haven't looked at the actual rules of professional responsibility or conduct in probably 20 or 30 or 40 years. And that is a problem, even though we have to take continuing legal education courses. I think man, it should be a mandatory that you brush up on ethics every year before you go out and um, represent clients. That's just my own opinion. Yeah, no, you're
2: right. You're right. So Yes, yeah, yeah, so just know at the end. So at the end of the day, the, the judge. I'll just read you his conclusion. He mm-hmm. says, um, "The judge, you know, presiding over a case is in the best position to appreciate the implications of those matters alleged in a recusal motion and deciding whether to recuse himself." The trial judge must carefully weigh the policy of promoting public confidence in the judiciary against the possibility that those questioning his impartiality might be seeking to avoid uh, the adverse consequences of his presiding over their case. And this court has carefully weighed the competing interests outlined in a case called Drexel.